The world is an old woman, and mistakes any guilt farthing for a gold coin, whereby, being often cheated, she will thenceforth trust nothing but the common copper. Thomas Carlyle. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me here this week. Uh, we're going to be going back to our regular history episodes for a while, uh, so I hope you enjoy. And uh, we will be continuing to talk about uh, the native groups in North America, or I should say the uh, ancestors of the native groups of North America. Uh, specifically, we will be talking about groups further east. Um, we then might go ahead and move in south uh, of the Rio Grande towards uh, what is now modern Mexico and the countries of Central America uh, to talk about you know the groups there. Though, um, depending on the timing, um, we, may, we may not move there until next week. Um, but um, depending on how much I cover this week, we will probably have another between one to three episodes of uh, of talking about North America at our current time period. And then we'll move to South America, and uh, I think it'll probably be around the same same number of episodes. So we'll, we'll be finishing out this season here shortly, uh, here in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Excuse me. And then we'll go ahead and um, we'll kind of do those little... Um, Episodes talking about uh, domestication, crops, that kind of thing. Get a little bit specific on it. Uh, of course, one on animals. Uh, and then we'll be talking about some other uh, subjects that will, be coming, uh, that will be becoming more important uh, for the next season. Uh, and I'm still working out uh, what the time frame for next season is going to be. Um, I wouldn't necessarily like it to be longer than this season. Like the... Longer than the 8,000 to 6,000, but it might be, um, if only because that will essentially move us kind of into the next period of human advancement. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll get there. Um, for now, though, let's just get back to um, talking about uh, the ancestors of um, modern Native Americans. Um, however, I did have a couple of pieces of uh, feedback, or at least um, a couple of people had asked me about the appearance of the bow and Erica. Uh, sorry, the bow and arrow in the Americas. Excuse me, um, because I had mentioned, of course, that Lottle, the dart thrower, uh, it emerging, but I didn't talk about the bow and arrow. Um, and I should just go ahead and uh, say that uh, we do not know when the first bows appeared in the Americas. That is a matter of great debate. Right now, the earliest date put forward by anyone of any serious academic you know, bearing or expertise um, gives a date of around 12,000 years ago, which is, of course, 10,000 B.C. But the evidence for this is very, very scant. And I think all of the evidence they have found uh, is just smaller stone heads uh, than you would typically find on spears and the like. Especially spears used to hunt, you know, larger uh, mammals or larger game. But uh, this evidence could just be, you know... um, it could be argued that this is just 
just as easily spears for like smaller something like a javelin as opposed to like a full spear something that would eventually be added to a, a spear thrower um so there you know that's kind of one of the the critiques of that very early evidence for bows um and we know some uh we do know that um you know some groups developed the bow lost it and they redeveloped it that um and some groups never redeveloped the bow and arrow uh i think there's evidence for very early usage of very simple small single pieces of wood bows in australia and then it just wasn't useful for the type of animals that they were hunting there so they essentially forgot how to make them and never had to develop uh redevelop them because they didn't need to uh it was kind of pointless um and we look at bows in places in like south africa with the Khoisan who use them, um, their bows are also very simple, very small, uh, but they have access to very powerful uh, toxins that they can coat their uh, arrows with uh, to help kill, which is not something uh, that you can necessarily find very easily in other places. So, you know, uh, swabbing your arrowhead with these toxins um makes it so even you know even if you don't have a strong bow you can you know you can still kill uh animals and you know harvest their meat fairly simply whereas you know other places you need a stronger bow to to take down larger prey which is again the primary source of food for or the primary source of meat for most people meat fur leathers that kind of thing um you need something with stopping power and these, the early bows, whenever they were made, were simply not strong enough for this. That's why people using them in South Africa and in other places in Africa, they were using these, you know, these very uh, strong uh, toxins to help, you know, knock the animal out as opposed to, uh, you know, deal fatal damage with their arrows. Now, uh, more firm evidence for the bows in North America comes of around 3,000-ish BC, uh, when you will see them in the toolkits of Arctic groups uh, descended from the Proto-Alouettes that we talked about last time. And over the next 1,000 years, you see more evidence of their use further south. And then another 1,000 years or two, after that, they appear all throughout North America. Now, there are those that argue that this diffusion theory is far too simplified, and that it is more likely than small, uh, more likely than not, that smaller groups, or I'm sorry, that uh, groups further south, again, were using more um, primitive or simplistic, might be the better term, bows, and that they were invented in those areas and then fell out of use and then uh, reintroduced or reinvented later by, you know, different peoples in other places as an extremely specialized hunting or fighting implement. But these more simplistic designs were phased out very quickly with the introduction spread of, um, the introduction of the more powerful bro uh, from the north. Um 
by groups uh, to the north, obviously. And I, I again, I think this is probably the more likely theory. I think that the uh, the ancestors of natives were using these smaller bows um, to hunt smaller game, uh, and then you know, in areas where that wouldn't be viable, they didn't bother making bows. However, once these more powerful composite or um, longer bows were introduced um, and they had more power, then you will see them spread either through trade or through, you know, um, uh, just viewing them, seeing them in action. However, you you know, you could imagine uh, people learning about these weapons and obtaining them. I think that that probably helped it spread all throughout the Americas. Uh, but we'll talk about more about that later because also it's very possible that the bow and arrow um, was not initially primarily a hunting implement. Um, but we'll talk about that again when we talk about the Alouettes moving uh, throughout the Americas um, or through the you know through the Arctic Circle and all, you know the northern reaches of Canada, Alaska, those areas. So that's something for us to go back to. Um, now let's go ahead and move and talk about you know the humans uh, get back on uh, the primary part of this of this episode's focus, uh, and that's talking about the humans living east uh, east of North America, and in this case by east I mean east of the Mississippi River, and that includes places in Canada, not just in the continental U.S. Now, um, this region was probably probably had a much lower population density than the areas to the west that we talked about last time. Um, and this area was and is much more heavily forested than the Great Plains and Rockies. Though, of course, large pine forests um, did recede some after the Younger Dryas. And the areas where they retreated from were replaced by uh, deciduous trees. And these are things like oaks, uh, maples, um, sweet gum, I think is another big important tree um, that's kind of, you know, taking the place of these larger pines. And of course, these types of trees uh, provided uh, more nuts and increased the number, you know, um, the, the, the warmer weather it also allowed the increase of... Um, the number of uh, bushes and shrubs that provided uh, wild fruit and berries and that that sort of thing. And of course, as we've talked about many times, there are, you know, gathering makes up a much larger portion of the Homo sapien diet at this point in time. Um, so these types of uh, forage are extremely important. Um, but, of course, um, because there's so much more of it, it allows these people to maintain a more traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle than places um, further to the west and south. Of course, in the west, they're supplementing their diet with a lot more fish and marine uh, foodstuffs. Um, not to say they weren't fishing, of course, in the east, but it, it's not quite as much of their diet. And uh, in the South, uh, it's, of course, more, 
it's more tolerable. It's not nearly as hot and dry um, in those regions at our current time or the time frame we're talking about. Uh, but it is still not as green and lush as it is in these other places. So they're they're having to get a little bit more creative to get a lot of food there. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I was going back through my notes, trying to find my place here. Uh, of course, also, these uh, this abundance of nuts and fruits and things like that, of course, are going to allow for a lot more animals than places to the south, uh, which, of course, makes it uh, a better place to find these larger, larger uh, animals like deer and things like that. So, um, that's important to keep in mind, too. Uh, and again, fewer animals, a little bit less forage. Um, again, it causes these people in the South that we'll be talking about later uh, to kind of have to, again, get creative. Uh, whereas the people in the, the Eastern uh, North America, uh, they're able to kind of continue the very you know long-standing human traditions of hunting and gathering for uh, a much longer period. They don't feel pressure for ch uh, to change their lifestyle, or at least nearly as much pressure to uh, change their lifestyle. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, also, of course, we talked about it a little bit last time, but the extinction of the megafauna also allowed these smaller animals more opportunity to thrive. Not only is there more food because the weather is better, there's also more food because there's less competition from these large, um, you know, things like mammoths and things like that. Also, um, the, there are bison in this area as well. Uh, in most modern Americans' understandings, uh, you know, of the the of the continent before the Europeans arrived, we tend to think of the bison as an animal of the West and Great Plains. But at this earlier period, there would be smaller herds east of the Appalachians and into what is now um, New England and like Eastern Canada. Though, of course, deer and smaller game are making up a much higher portion of. Uh, or they, they take up more space and are probably a much uh, larger portion of meat consumption um, by eastern groups due to the bison herds being smaller. Um, uh, and I'm also, I can't remember if I mentioned it last time, uh, but domesticated dogs were present with these peoples and they would be used for hunting, uh, fighting off uh, wolves, uh, coyotes in certain areas and of course they'd be helping keep watch uh, companionship and I'm I'm sure in other places uh, or I'm sure as in other places um, they would be a food source in desperate times if, if it came to that um, and again fish would also make up an important uh, a part of their diet though again most of the fish these people are eating are um <coughs> probably a much smaller variety uh, from the place to the west and also there's a lot more freshwater fish as opposed to uh, uh, saltwater or sea fish uh, they're getting them from uh, lakes ponds and all of the rivers of the um, 
that make up the Mississippi River system, which is just massive. Uh, it, it, it's hard to kind of convey uh, how many rivers and streams feed into the Mississippi in some way or another. Uh, in terms of plants, of course, they had access to, um, again, we talked about nuts, berries. Um, they also had wild vegetable precursors or at least plants that are you know, essentially vegetables. Um, also, they had seeds, wild seeds. Um, that's not something I usually mention, but that is something that people everywhere are mentioning. Uh, they're not always replanting. Um, they were not necessarily replanting seeds early on. This is something that uh, when they're not replanting them, they're just eating them, grinding them up um, into um, flowers and things like that to, I'm sure, help cook. Uh, but they could also be roasted or, or you know, put on fires uh, to kind of cook. Uh, sunflower seeds, of course, very popular even today. And of course, a lot of what they're eating in terms of plants are uh, either identical to what they were having uh, that we talked about last time, or they're, they're cousins of the varieties that we, that we talked about in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And of course, uh, nuts all around, you know, those would mostly be in the forested areas. Berries could grow, you know, uh, you know, in forest, but they were also near water sources, plains, hills, you know, near lakes and ponds and that kind of thing. Uh, in terms of rainfall, uh, it's probably very similar to what it is today. Maybe a little bit wetter, uh, but uh, by and large, uh, the eastern portion of North America, very, very close to what it is today. Maybe a little bit cooler, um, but uh, not by not by a you know super noticeable degree. Now, um, I would like to talk about specific sites uh, during this time uh, because there are a decent number, uh, you know, that you could find throughout uh, the modern U.S. and Canada. Um, that said, I'm not really going to be going into too much detail on these sites. And the reason being for this is that at this early date, the 8,000 to 6,000 range, there isn't really anything to distinguish these sites from each other. Um, they're not part of a monolithic culture like Clovis. And I, when I say culture, I mean like tool culture. Um there is not any kind of thing that ties them all together, um, but there isn't really much to distinguish these sites from each other. Um, there are small variations uh, to tools and you know cultural artifacts and things like that, but by and large, they're just there's enough differences to make you think well. Are these really related? But they're also not radically different enough to be like, are these people completely separate? Um, so at this early stage, there is almost nothing to um, tie in any of these peoples to either each other or to later groups that are going to have much more um, unique and distinct um, artifacts um 
But again, that's something that doesn't emerge until after this season ends. <coughs> Excuse me. But I should say some of these sites that are um, at this at this part of the season, eight thousand, six thousand, um, that are being seasonally occupied for you know a year or two, or maybe a couple of months out of the year, um, they will eventually become sites of permanent settlement, or at least. If not uh, these sites directly, maybe there's a location a mile or two away that do become sites of per- permanent settlements. And these older sites are either um, used as kind of like a secondary location, or maybe they're you know it's put into like a position of uh, honor, or you know uh, maybe a, a aspect of uh, worship or something along those lines. Um, for an example, uh, there is the site known as Indian Knoll in Kentucky. And I think right now the oldest material there has been f- that can be firmly dated uh, can be dated to about 5000 BC. But, of course, due to the nature of the materials that the artifacts are made from and due to the very relatively small size of groups at, in this part of the continent um it is very possible um that uh these sites were being used much earlier and that you know again due to the nature of the materials and all that kind of stuff that it would be very hard to find stuff that can be dated earlier just because how they're making tools and what they're making the tools with just wouldn't last in the archaeological record from an earlier period. Uh, but they have found some small pieces that they think could be older than 5,000. It's just there's nothing to really test them against. So that is something to keep in mind. Uh, it is, again, very likely uh, that there are... Well, it, we know for a fact that uh, virtually everywhere in the continental eastern U.S. and Canada um, has homo sapiens living somewhere in that that region the question is where how long were they living there and how i guess how numerous they were uh and when did this change or when did they change from being you know mobile hunter gatherers to slightly more sedentary groups Uh, and when did they begin to kind of uh develop their own unique styles and uh, cultures and uh, work, I guess, um, uh, crafts, essentially, um, tools, that kind of thing. When when did they begin developing true variations of these things? When did these new regional groups coalesce? It's probably not at this earlier period, but uh, it is something that's going to be happening in the next season. Um, also, I don't think I can't remember if I've mentioned it or not, but the uh, the islands of um, like the Caribbean and you know places like that further to the south of uh, Florida and the Gulf Coast, um, those places are not occupied yet. They will not be occupied for another couple thousand years. That happens. Uh, that happens later. So uh, keep that in mind as well. 
Um, but there is one group that basically goes against everything I just talked about uh, in terms of there's not a whole lot to distinguish them from each other. Um, and that is a group known as the Old Copper Culture. Um, now, if you were to ask most people, at least in America, um, and I, I'm assuming a lot of other people in uh, other parts of the world that know anything about you know the Americas, uh, they would not assume that groups in North America had any type of knowledge or skill with metalworking. Um, of course, very famously, um, when the Spanish arrived to Mesoamerica, um, the Aztecs did not have iron or steel weapons. Uh, the same is true of the North American groups when the uh, Spanish and the French and the English showed up. They, they did not have that type of technology. So people are usually stunned to find out that there is a group that is working metal uh, in North America. Of course, there are people who are aware that um, groups like the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas uh, worked gold and silver. Um, but again, they didn't have, they weren't using other metals uh, for tools. And uh, this process did again take place in North America as well. Um, specifically, I think the main kind of nucleus of this uh, of this culture will form on um, there's a peninsula off um, if you look at a map of the modern US, uh, the state of Michigan uh, looks like a glove or a mitt um, and then it also kind of has an unconnected peninsula. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as the Upper Peninsula. Um, on that peninsula, there is a smaller peninsula. And this is called the Keweenaw Peninsula. Excuse me. Um, and uh, this isn't the only place, but uh, there, are, there are plenty of others um, around, like uh, the Great Lakes, Lake Superior. Um, I think on the Canadian side near... Um, uh, Manitoba, um, Ontario. Um, these are all kind of places that are generally associated with the old copper culture. Uh, and it's important to remember that metals technically are very similar to stone uh, in terms of where they come from. Um, but, uh, and the dating on this is a little debated. Um, there are obviously people in the area, you know, at this time frame. I think around 7,500 is the first time that they're really getting solid dates of people being in the region. Um, but this, uh, this group, or at least people following this uh, tradition of using copper, will remain uh, for quite a while. Uh, though, of course, there are going to be changes in the makeup and languages and all that kind of stuff and, and how uh, or what types of tools are going to be made, uh, that kind of thing. But by and large, this region is going to be uh, very, uh, very prominent in kind of, um, I guess the best term for it is prestige goods. Um, 
Though I should again point out that you know they weren't just using copper to make you know fancy items, though they were, uh, and that was a big part of you know of their importance. Uh, but they were using copper for uh, tools, practical purposes as well. But uh, it's very easy to kind of um, focus on the more elaborate designs that are, that, you know, were found in areas, you know, and it's very clear, at least uh, extremely likely, that they were used for more ceremonial or uh, more maybe... Um, maybe a display of uh, power or prestige as opposed to just, you know, practicality. Uh, these copper crafts uh, will, you know, very, you know, because, again, they are very beautiful, they are very well designed, uh, they are going to be kind of status symbols, um, at least for a period. Um, you know, it... And that's something we see in other places, you know, copper tools, uh, copper weapons do become, you know, status symbols in those in other areas as well. This isn't this isn't that surprising. This is it's uh it's something that's very different from what most people would have access to. Um, and I, I believe I've mentioned before in other places again that. Um, you know, you, you had copper in um, what's, uh, I think, modern Iran, Iraq, uh, and there are a couple of places in Europe that, you know, you have small, again, very rudimentary items, um, raw copper kind of taken out, mined out of the ground. Um, however, in North America, the situation is a little bit different. Um, the copper here is, or in, the, in that area, uh, was extremely pure. In some cases, as pure as 99% copper. <coughs> Excuse me. And initially, they had veins of the, of the material just on the surface. They didn't have to dig into the sides of cliffs or dig up the ground. They just had veins of copper. And just coming out of the earth. So, you know, and they were able to kind of break out chunks fairly easily at first. And then from there, uh, because it's so pure, they didn't have to smelt it, which is something that we have that has to be done in places um, in the old world, uh, at least very early copper discoveries. Um, but essentially, the native groups. Um, practice uh, process. Um, they're they're working it cold essentially. They're shaping it. Uh, they're doing cold rolling, which is again something I'll talk about when I get to um, the metallurgical episodes and explanation stuff. Um, they don't necessarily have to um, invent these blast furnaces to smelt out the impurities in the copper. Uh, it's just something that for them it's very easy to do. Now, of course, as time progresses, um, they will, of course, you know, kind of develop their own quarries and mines and things like that to get at more copper. Um, but um, as far as I know, they never developed um, 
any kind of uh, smelting or like blast furnaces or, or molds to make items. That this is almost all done by hand, shaped, um, you know, by banging it out in uh, on stone or you know with other kinds of rocks. Um, which in other parts of the Americas, that is, again, something that's done with gold and silver. Although I think that some of those places did eventually make um, molds and things like that. I don't think there's ever been any evidence found uh, for you know copper culture sites where that was done. I think there are people who are convinced that they had at least some level of smelting technology, but... Um, there, again, there's never been any hard evidence, and I think all the artifacts we have found from the copper cultures, and there's a lot of them, uh, and again, you can find all types of things. Uh, fish hooks, kind of um, uh, adze, which are like those uh, very crude rudimentary hose that you would use to dig up and till soil, um, that kind of thing. So, um, But we'll, we'll continue to talk about the... Um, the old copper culture. Um, again, at this early stage, they're just now kind of um, making you know more again more simplistic designs and things like that. And eventually, they will become you know very highly skilled um, cold uh, cold metal workers. Uh, and their 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 artifacts show up everywhere uh, after a period of time. Um, trying to think. Uh, now, tests have been done um, on copper, kind of from the region. Uh, they were kind of done up in a very similar fashion to to the way that um, stone materials um, were done by the natives. They basically they found these examples of both copper and uh, stone tools from peoples living in those regions, and they recreated these uh, designs with um, you know just brand new they created them from scratch but just copying essentially the, the designs um, and what they found was that copper as a weapon uh, or you know as say a um, a spearhead versus a stone spearhead they're about equal uh, they're neither is clearly superior to the other uh, so um We'll talk about it more later as we progress, you know, through, you know, the seasons. Um, but again, copper is not a clear, um, a clearly better better material to use for survival than some stones are. Um, and kind of the reason that copper becomes popular is because of its aesthetics, uh, as opposed to necessarily its. Um, uh, its um, usefulness. Uh, it's not. It's not necessarily better than stone. It just you know generally has a better look uh, as opposed to a more effective um, uh, or just it, it's not as effective uh, it, or it's not any more effective. I think is the best way to put it. It just looks better essentially. That's why copper initially becomes popular. Um, but again, when we get to the metallurgy. I'll talk about how the difference in copper in these locations kind of um, changes how technology evolves going forward in the various regions. 
Um, but uh, the copper culture is definitely the standout of the North American groups at this period. Um, there are again going to be more regional groups that become very distinct in the next couple of seasons. Uh, and they'll, of course, tie in with each other. Uh, and, you know, some copper artifacts will be very far south. Uh, and uh, very far east and west as well. Um, but yeah, so that was something, you know, doing research for this show is, is I learned a lot about that that I didn't uh, know about at all. Because again, typically, um, again, I think most people learning about history, they under, you know, they understood that uh, the natives did not have the same level of weaponry. Uh, and indeed, they didn't even have you know iron for armor or things like that. That's part of the reason that they uh, lost to you know, clearly inferior numbers, at least when it comes to the Spanish uh, attacking um, the Aztecs. Now, there are other factors uh, that we will get into far in the future. That's not the only reason they lost. It's just a small contributing factor, but we'll get into that again in the future. But that is something that I was surprised about, that there were groups in the Americas, even at this early date, uh, working copper. In fact, um, they're working copper uh, into more elaborate designs than in other places at the same time. Uh, again, because these other places don't have access to as pure copper. Um, they're having to learn how to smelt out the impurities to really get good... Um, useful pieces uh to um to create here that's not the problem uh it's easy to get or at least relatively easy to get mine out uh, and then they get to basically experiment um, and one of the great things about metal as opposed to other stone uh, if it breaks you can eventually rework it uh you know into some maybe something smaller maybe something different uh, and then later, of course, in other areas, you can melt it down and re kind of recast it, reforge it into a different item by combining it with more material. So uh, we'll get to that uh, all going forward. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, about 40 minutes. Uh, I think this is kind of a good place to call it. I don't want to like seem like they're not important places there are uh important places in the eastern uh north america however again they're just all kind of the same now if you really wanted to dive in deep on this there is a lot of good academic papers you can read where there's a lot of debates about like oh this site is clearly belonging to this group or this site belongs to that group are no 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 both of these sites both belong to this group and not that group um literally you could do you could do a couple of hours on this however uh this is an audio format uh and again i am not an archaeologist i do not know enough about very specific uh minutiae and points and arrow designs and bifurcated and non-bifurcated uh points to really get to dive too deep on this. Um, there's going to be a lot more to talk about here in North America. But at this early date, there's just so much that's still debated. 
and so much that isn't clear, I think it's just easier to kind of just, again, sum up. You've got a small number of people who are moving into this region. Uh, they are able to continue the hunter-gatherer lifestyle much more simply than groups to the uh, southwest and uh, Mexico, Central America. Um, they're, they're able to, again, to continue this traditional lifestyle. And this is great for them because their population does grow. Uh, and it grows pretty pretty steadily. Uh, like most uh, hunter-gatherer groups, I think it's like 100 years, your population will double. They kind of had that going with them too. And that's not something that groups to the south could necessarily take part in, at least not at first. So I wouldn't be surprised to see like, you know, maybe between the you know the 10,000 BC to 8,000 that these first peoples moving into the east might be catching up to some of their neighbors uh, to the west and south. Um, but as we will talk about in the next episode, these people will begin to develop uh, agriculture, which uh, again is something that we know has been happening in the Middle East and parts of uh, East Asia. Um, uh, but of course, you know, in Mesoamerica, you have the kind of the origin of agriculture in the Americas. And we'll talk about that next episode. There's a lot of uh, crops that we'll be, that we'll be talking about. Uh, and we'll be talking about the peoples who are learning how to use that and then spreading it. Um, but yeah, so, um, and it's them adapting this fully sedentary lifestyle uh, that allows them essentially to have a population explosion, uh, probably putting them again ahead of the groups from the east who had maybe been uh, slowly catching up to or maybe even slightly starting to outpace them. Um, but the again, the origins of agriculture in the New World uh, is going to be very uh, key uh, factor for um, uh, the next couple of seasons here in the Americas. I mean, it's true in the, the old world as well, but <clears throat> there are, uh, there's a lot of other factors contributing there, but um, the various types of crops uh, being developed in Mesoamerica uh, and then spreading out from there and then as we'll talk about in South America, there are some more crops being developed. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more, I feel like, to talk about the spreading, like what spreads where and why. Whereas in the old world, it's very clear why these things are spreading where they are. Uh, I think in the, the Americas, you have a little bit more nuance there. At least that's just kind of how I've read it, kind of how I see it, but um, I might be wrong. That just could be me, um, you know, kind of coloring my, my understanding with my own personal uh, kind of worldview, but we'll, we'll, t we'll talk about it. You guys might agree, you guys might disagree, but uh, regardless, I do thank you all for joining me this week. I know I got a little rambly at a couple of places, um, but I hope you've enjoyed. Um, Again, we'll have one to three more episodes here in uh, North America, and then we'll move south. So, um, 
and I'm still working on again the time frame for the next season, but um, yeah, we'll figure it out. You guys will you guys will be able to to find out what happens, and um, yeah. If you have any questions or feedback, uh, constructive criticism, please feel free to email me at waratrevpod at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. I'll have a link for that uh, on the episode description. And of course, you can always uh, comment on any of my YouTube videos. I do occasionally live stream on YouTube during the week, sometimes on the weekends, but usually during the week. Uh, if you ever have a question, feel free to stop by if I'm live um, or just comment on any of the videos and I will read them and respond there. Um, but yeah, I'd like to thank you all again. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.